0: To turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 21. It was with some horror that uh, over a month ago, we, uh, I realized we, lo- we looked at this over a month ago. <laughs> uh, Matthew's Gospel, where we well, were picking up our, our series in Matthew's Gospel. And uh, this morning I want us to, uh, to read um, about Jesus cleansing the temple in verse 12 and cursing the fig tree down to the end of 22. So 12 to 22, Matthew 21, 12 to 22. Before we read, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, your words. And again, we pray that uh, the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out, uh, out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt You will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive, if you have faith. So we've been following Jesus through the gospel, and uh, he's been making his way to Jerusalem, and now he's entered uh, Jerusalem, and uh, and Jesus knows what's coming. Uh, he's already uh, pronounced that he is uh, is going to be is going to suffer at the hands of elders and scribes, and he's going to be put to death. But he's going to be raised again on the third day. So Jesus knows what's going to happen. And as we've followed the disciples, you've you've probably noticed how how difficult. The disciples have found to take in that information how can it be true that Jesus is going to die and, uh, and, and rise again from the dead. It's such an alien idea to the, uh, an average Jew that um, they, were, they would find it difficult and so they, they struggle to accept it um, and we've seen how that's been the case and uh, we saw last time how Jesus comes to the gates of Jerusalem and he he's with crowds and some of them have been following Jesus himself because they've they've realized he's come southwards uh, and eastwards and then he's coming uh, heading westwards into Ju- to Jerusalem. And also it's the time of year when people are assembling in Jerusalem anyway. It's nearly the Passover. So uh, so there are great crowds moving in one direction towards Jerusalem. And uh, and some of them are crying out uh, to Jesus, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Uh, Lord, save us, is the, what Hosanna means. Uh, Lord, save us. Which is maybe a strange thing to say, but they, they clearly believe something about Jesus and about his identity. And so they're crying out to him uh, in praise, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And we're left with, uh, when we looked at this last time, we we're left with the city kind of an uproar. Almost uh, being stirred up, verse ten, the whole city was stirred up, saying, "Who is this? Who is this guy?" And the answer go, going around is that he's some sort of prophet. Uh, he, he's the prophet, our prophet, Jesus of Nazareth. So, well, we come to this passage now, and he comes to the temple, and then he curses a fig tree, and two strange stories. I think they're connected to each other, and I'll explain why in a minute. But there's, there's this, first of all, this sort of moderately violent episode <laughs> in the temple with Jesus you know, overturning the tables, which would be quite fun if I did it here. Wouldn't <laughs> it? You'd all wake up, wouldn't you? Uh, but turning over the tables is a pretty moderately violent kind of event, and unseating the traders that are, are there. He also heals people in the midst of it, uh, much to the joy of the children around, who start saying again, Hosanna to the Son of David. Uh, Lord, save us. Lord, save us. And that's all to the consternation of the scribes and the priests who are overseeing the trading that's going on here. And then the second story is this incident with a fig tree uh, that Jesus curses in verse 19, And he says, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Poor fig tree. Um, And there's then a discussion between the disciples and Jesus about what they've just seen. And they start talking about what faith looks like. What real faith looks like. Uh, Faith is, you know, faith and prayer that, that moves mountains. Which is kind of a strange thing again, isn't it? Faith that moves mountains. Well, we'll come to that in a moment. Um, But as ever, you see, the the significance of those events is in how they highlight who Jesus is. His identity. And that's always the big question. I'm... I'm speaking to to you this morning, and some of you will have a good grasp of the identity of Jesus. But let me assure you that I make no assumption that maybe you've been coming to church for years and you still don't understand the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ yet. You take him for granted. He's a historical figure who gave some moral teaching, perhaps. And I want to assure you that I want you to know who he is. That's the question, isn't it? Who is this man? And you need to grasp the identity of this man. So let's walk through this passage. First of all, let's talk about the the temple and this incident in the temple. And the temple, of course, is at the center of the Jewish religion. uh, Center of the religion of Israel. It's the heartbeat of the religious life of the Jews. And... You know, if you think about it, if, if the temple is healthy then the whole of religion is healthy the whole of the Jewish people are healthy that's, that's likely, isn't it? and if it's not healthy well what then? there's a, there's a saying that goes around I think it's, it comes from mostly political leadership in, uh, in this country uh, the fish rots from the head down. you heard that before? The fish rots from the head down. What it means is, you know, if the leader is, is rotten in some way, then it, that, that culture kind of spreads down into the rest of the, the organization. And I think it applies to God's people too. If the heads, the, you know, the leaders of a, a church are rotten, it spreads into the, the whole church. Because, they just, because the church follows, in its lead, in its, follows its leaders. I remember once a uh, church planter saying, talking about the, you know, the first five years of the church plant, then, if, then the ten years, and then and making this interesting comment, that after ten years, the problems of the church are the problems of you. I, and I think that's probably true. You, know, you as a minister... A church planter. If there are problems in the church, it's probably because it's problems with you. That's that's a scary thought for a minister. What are the problems in this church? <laughs> Does it come down to me and Falco and Johnny? Probably mostly me because I've been here longer. But you know, the fish rots from the head down. And uh, you know, if the temple is bad. Then Jewish religion is bad, and people are, are doing the bad things, they're doing the wrong things. Focusing on the wrong things. Well, what does Jesus see when he comes to the temple? Well he sees buying and selling. Now, before we jump to a, a rapid conclusion about that, there, there is a legitimate reason for some trade in the environs of the temple. At the Passover, uh, people needed to make their tithes and offerings. And there was provision in the law of Moses that allowed someone to to sell the tithe locally, take the money, so to sell the offering locally, take the money, go to Jerusalem, and then buy an offering again. So they don't have to travel with animals and so on. Uh However, this was a, a marketplace. This has expanded beyond all reasonableness. And it become a marketplace within the precincts of the temple. So there's all sorts of buying and selling going on. And trading and profit, you know, profit making. And this is why Jesus calls it, therefore, a den of robbers. There's sharp practice going on, there's profiteering going on, there's price gouging is the modern term for it these days. Making a profit out of needy people. And so what does Jesus do? He drives them out. And so he does it in quite a dramatic fashion. He, he overturns the tables, he starts unseating the, uh, the traders. Because this is what the the heartbeat of Jewish religion looked like. Trading and buying and selling. Money making. It was rotten to the core. Rotting from the head down. And so when we look at this action of Jesus. This angry action of Jesus. We need to look at it in a particular way. We need to see it as the displeasure of God on the state of religion in Jerusalem. And Jesus, and this is what he's doing, is he teaches them. Because he says in verse 13, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And so Jesus is not a ranting madman here. He is... A cool-headed, this is a cool-headed, deliberate act of Jesus to demonstrate the mind of his heavenly Father towards what is happening here. And the heart of it is that, that section I just quoted from you, which is actually taken from Isaiah chapter 56, uh, verse 7. Where the temple is described, and you, you can look at this up later, Isaiah 56, verse 7. The temple is described as a place of prayer for the nations, where foreigners, outsiders, aliens join themselves to the Lord is an amazing missionary statement. And it's in the middle of a section where Not only Israel, the ethnic Israel, is is joined to the Lord, but the nations are gathered in, in this temple. And so in doing that, in saying that in Isaiah 56, the Lord is anticipating and planning this great work of salvation which will encompass the whole world. That the gospel goes out to the whole world. But what does Jesus find? Not a place filled with prayer and and desire and full of expectation for the great salvation of the Lord. But people whose hearts are filled with earthly concerns. Trading, making money, stealing money maybe. Well, Let's pause and think about what this means for us today. And there are, there are more warnings for us today. Let, let me mention a couple of warnings for us. And the first is this. That a rotten people is a people that does not pray. A rotten people is a people that does not pray. And that can be individually, you as an individual. Or it can be as a body, as a church. Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, that we are to pray always when the church came together in those early days remember in Acts chapter 2 verse 42 what did the people do they were gathered together uh, devoting themselves to the apostles teaching to the breaking of bread and to prayer and fellowship but prayer, the prayers they were praying together So, let me ask you this morning is prayer and prayer with other Christians a central part of your life. So I'm very thankful. We've got this church WhatsApp group. Lots of churches do it. We've got this church WhatsApp group. And many of you will share prayer requests on that WhatsApp group. But here's something I find for me. How easy it is To say, yeah, I'm praying for you. (laughs) But what a different thing it is to say, to actually pray. Easy to say, I'm praying for you. And it's encouraging to see that, and I understand that. But do you actually pray? Are you actually taking the time to pray? It's Just for a few seconds, just to say, I'm going to pray about that right now. Do you pray? Are you a prayerful person? Lives in prayer. Do you actually settle down to, to actually pray? Um, I mentioned, I mentioned to some of you that um, uh, a, a well-known minister in Scotland, when, uh, who means a great deal to me, who meant a great deal to me, he passed away in January, uh, aged ninety plus, I think, um, and uh, he he had a profound influence in so many people's lives in Scotland, and abroad, all over the world, actually. Uh, Strangely, I I keep meeting people who don't really know who he is, Eric Alexander. But he had a great deal to say about prayer. Uh, He actually wrote a book on prayer. Um, We used to have it on the bookshelf, I don't know if we still have. Um, Just called Prayer. (laughs) And... um, And he says this about the relationship between private prayer and corporate prayer, getting together to pray. And it's interesting to think through this issue of private prayer and corporate prayer, praying together. He says this, No one can engage in public prayer who does not know what it is to engage with God in private. But the man or woman who has begun to pray in private will gravitate to the fellowship of praying people in the church. See that motion? If you're somebody who is, let me tease that a bit, if you're somebody who is personally praying and has a a vibrant, healthy prayer life, you're going to want to meet with other Christians to pray and to share in that prayer. That's what he's saying. Now, think about the reverse of that, the contrapositive of that. Or a church that doesn't want to pray together. Or church members who don't want to pray together. Does that say something perhaps about your personal prayer life? And the way in which you pray? You see, prayer leads to a desire to pray with others. Is that true of you today? Here's the second warning, I think. Uh, a rotten people is a people that looks inwards. A rotten people is a people that looks inwards, not outwards. Uh, so Jesus' teaching from Isaiah 56, verse 7, is a passage that speaks about how you know, the, the temple is to be a place of gathering of people from the nations. It looks outwards to the world. It's a light to the world. Those great lamps that were lit once a year in the the temple. Uh, And and at night time all the people would gather gather around and camp around and see these great lights in the temple. And it contrasts with the darkness of the world all around. And it's supposed to be a a light that draws people in. And prayer, therefore, is is outward looking it's looking to the nations and praying for the salvation of the nations so a rotten people is a people who looks inwards and not outwards and prayer that kind of prayer is work it's, i mean it's hard work it's not it's just meant to be a, a kind of nice inward personal spiritual experience where we feel all warm and fuzzy inside but prayer is actually work Pleading at the throne of God. Crying out to God. Seeking his face. Saying, God, you have promised us. Please do it. In your wisdom, do it as you see fit. But please do it. Cry out to God. And be bold with God. So when are you going to do it? Lord, we wait for you. I wonder what your prayers are like therefore. Uh, who of you are praying that people might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? I think we're very good at, uh, in the Christian church of bringing personal needs to God, and there's a place for that. It's good and right that we do that. But it's not all. We need to pray too for the nations, for Solihull, broadly, for our neighbours, for your streets, for your colleagues. You need to be praying for these people if you have a heart and you're not a rotten inside. Pray for these people. Cry out to God. Cry that he would move. And show his mercy and his great power and come in saving grace to needy sinners. Well, as you're thinking about how rotten things have got in Jerusalem... Maybe you're thinking that there might be aspects of your spiritual life and our church life that have gone rotten. Uh, well, as you're thinking about those things, let's move on to the, the strange account of the fig tree. And it's something, you know, it's a strange story, isn't it? Um, so here's Jesus the following morning, and he's, he's hungry. Uh, <laughs> didn't he get breakfast? There's nobody looking after him. But he's hungry. You know, he, he's going and he's looking. He sees this fig tree, but he sees no figs on the tree. And so he's, he says, and his, his response seems may seem at first sight a little bit intemperate, uh, may no fruit ever come from you again, and the fig tree withered at once. Interesting story about that, about how somebody once reacted to that. In March 1927, a meeting of the National Secular Society in London, uh, Bertrand Russell, who was one of the great philosophers of the, of, of, of the United Kingdom, gave a lecture called Why I'm Not a Christian. It gives a very long lecture. But in it, he pointed out uh, certain, what he called, moral defects in Jesus' character. And he singles out this account. And uh, he noted that maybe it was out of season for figs, how could the tree be blamed? And so he concludes that Jesus... uh, lacks the proper degree of kindliness in his nature. And for that reason, he said, I can't become a Christian. Uh, you know, everybody makes up the reasons why they can't become a Christian. Uh, and Bertrand Russell has his. But is Jesus being unreasonable here? Why is he doing that? Well, of course, the answer is no. And as we noted at last, last time when we looked at Matthew 21... Jesus is never at the mercy of events. And what that means is that all these events are planned. And Jesus here is seeking to make a point to his disciples. And so what we have here is something of an acted out parable that Jesus is is performing for them. And to understand that parable, we need to understand something of the the Old Testament imagery that's being used. Why is he picking on a fig tree? And the reason is that fig trees and vines are an important symbol of an Israel that is at peace and is uh, in God's presence and is bearing fruit. You see that in Isaiah chapter 5 about the vine that's, uh, that's no longer uh, growing anything. You know, the vine re- represents the people of God. So does the fig tree. It represents the people of God. And what God is looking for is fruitfulness in his people. And so when God comes to speak about the issue and how they're not bearing fruit, he says things like this in Joel t- chapter 2, verse 21. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, and the fruit, and the fig tree and vine will give their full yield. So he's looking ahead and saying, you know, I will, have, in the fullness of time, produce fruit in you. But for the moment, uh, it's not the case. Or Micah chapter 4 verse 4. Uh, they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. So a fruitful fig tree or a fruitful vine is a sign of God's blessing. An eternal blessing. But what if there's an absence of fruit? What if there's an absence of fruit? Well there's an absence of fruit because of Sin amongst God's people. And it brings God's displeasure. And so Jeremiah says, chapter 8, verse 12, they were ashamed when they committed, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there were no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered. And what I gave them Has passed away from them. You see the people of God are not bearing fruit. And so God is passing over them. And so with those prophetic words in mind. We can see that this fig tree in Matthew 21. Represents something. It represents the state of Israel in Jesus' day. And here comes Jesus. Welcomed as the king the day before, who has found the temple to be a den of robbers rather than a place of prayer. And now he passes by this fig tree that is bearing no fruit and he pronounces a curse on it. You see the the movement that's going on here. (coughs) For all the religiosity of the people of Israel, God is saying, You're cursed. Because you have no fruit, you see a rotten people is a people that does not bear fruit, and that's the message of the fig tree. In other words, there's no—what you know, do you mean by no fruit? There's no discernible production of spiritual fruit in your life. You know, if you've got a fruit tree in your garden, and we've got two or three. In the next couple of months, the buds will open up. And the fruit will come in summer. And you may be pretty excited about what's going to happen, how, what kind of crop you're going to produce, you're going to, or going to uh, harvest. And every week, you're maybe going to be looking out through the spring and into the summer and looking at the progress of the fruit on your trees. It's the same in the Christian life. A Christian will bear fruit. A church will bear fruits. The fruits of character. The fruits of new creation. And Jesus is able to say in Matthew chapter 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, By their fruits shall you know them. It'll be obvious if you're genuinely bearing fruits. So, what about your life today? Are you bearing fruits? Are you just drifting? Are you a withered fig tree? What are you? Seek to bear fruit. Well, Jesus goes on in verse 21. And finally, we come to this notion of this issue of faith and prayer. Jesus says in verse 21, Have faith in God and do not doubt. Why, Why does he say that at that point? I just wonder if the the shocking commotion in the temple and the significance of the events of the tree might have stimulated the thought amongst his disciples to say, if Israel is dead, is this the end then? What of all the history, what of all the heritage that we have, of the scriptures that we have, has it all come to an end then, Jesus? What about all the promises that God made, Has, has he given up on his promises? Imagine how disturbing that might be if your sense of purpose is kind of built upon that heritage. But Jesus says, but have faith in God and do not doubt. Have faith in God and do not doubt. Jesus is drawing attention to the fact that the future does not depend on the temple. The future does not depend on the Jewish establishment. And so on and so on. It doesn't depend on any of these things. The certainty of the fulfillment of the promises of God depends on God alone. And therefore their eyes need to be firmly fixed on God. Have faith in God. Not in what you can see. And actually God is doing a new thing here. The old is passing away, the new is coming. With the coming of Jesus Christ. And all the time, God remains faithful to His promises. He has not given up on his promises. He never will until they are fulfilled and so it raises for, the, for us the question: what does faith look like? Uh, if faith doesn 't depend on a building or numbers of people or the busyness of church life and any, none of that stuff, it, faith doesn 't depend on any of that stuff. you know how easy it is for us to to rest on what we see, <laughs> how discouraged we were in the early days of this church, and maybe a handful of people were coming. I think maybe somebody else will come today, some new person get excited about a new person and I'm excited about new people coming, but you know we shouldn't rest on what we see. our confidence is in God himself that 's why the most important thing for us to do personally is to cultivate. A living personal walk with God through life through Jesus Christ. That's why we need to be gathering together as Christians. To avail ourselves of the means of grace. To to meet together to worship. To meet together to pray together. To meet together to have the Lord's Supper together. To meet together. Keep doing it. Stop saying I've had enough. I've done enough for this week. Keep doing it. Keep going. Keep pressing on. Cultivate. Cultivate that relationship to God. And he singles out prayer, doesn't he? He talks about prayer. And it's a tricky passage. It looks like an open-ended invitation to pray, and whatever you pray for will happen, and the most amazing things will happen. Moving mountains, withering fig trees, uh, all kinds of weird things. It's worth remembering that Jesus never literally moved a mountain. Show me a Bible passage where Jesus moves a mountain. And he he had complete faith. In his father. So what does he mean? What's he getting at? Well it's certainly a metaphor. For the amazing power of prayer. And that's that's the point of this fantastic image. uh, Image that's given to us here. Of moving mountains. You see the rottenness of the mountain of your sin. Can be removed. But is that all he means by it? Often, of course, there's more to the picture language than meets the eye. And one of the fruitful things that we can do is always ask, is this picture that Jesus is using here of moving mountains, is it found somewhere in the Old Testament? Is it it built into the structure of Scripture already? And, of course, the answer is yes. If you look at the prophecy of Zechariah, chapter 14... He says this in verse 4, On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. They are moving mountains. And then he goes on to verse 10, The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gates, to the corner gates, and from the Tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. And these verses are concerned with the coming of the Lord again. Not the first time in humility, but the second time in glory. And if that's right, and I think it is, then what Jesus has in mind in speaking about moving mountains is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises resulting in the bringing of his kingdom and the king who is on the throne, which is described in convulsive and graphic terms of splitting mountains and making plains of the nations. He's speaking here, of course, about the eschatological city of Zion of God. To which we are all headed if we are Christians. The eschatology, is a big word. The end times, the last thing, you know, the last destination. The celestial city as uh, John Bunyan called it. And what Jesus is elaborating here is the kind of praying... That we're supposed to pray when we say, your kingdom come. You know that simple line in the Lord's Prayer? Your kingdom come and we skip over it and don't really think very much about it. But it ought to remind us that God's purposes have not finished yet. And that God's purposes don't come to an end with the cursing of Israel. That seems to be happening here. But ulti- that ultimately God's promises will be fulfilled. So pray in faith. Keep praying. Pray for the nations. Pray for the salvation of God. So while it seems like an open-ended invitation, it's a prayer that's conditioned by the ultimate purpose of God. So let me just run through some other conditions of prayer. You It's always good just to put these things all together. So four quick things. Firstly, your prayers have to be according to the will of God. 1 John 5.14 This is the confidence we have towards him that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us according to his will. Here's the second thing. It has to have the right motive. James chapter 4 verse 3 You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We have a desire for something. We want it and we want it and we want it. We say to God, will you give us it please? Uh, can I have that? Like, you're like a little child. And sometimes your motives are all wrong about that. So you need to have the right motives. Why are you praying it? Thirdly, third thing, quick thing. You must not seek, uh, you mu- sorry, you must not s- cherish sin in your heart. So, Psalm 66, verse 18. If I cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. What do I mean by cherish sin? The ser- it means that there are certain things in your life you actually love that you know are wrong you're sinning deliberately but you think well God doesn't matter it doesn't, doesn't mind or or God won't see it or the Christian friends won't see it and so I'm just going to carry on with my little sinful practices here and there and you're kind of cherishing sin in your life cherishing, loving holding on to, caressing that's what we do with sins isn't it I look at my life and that's true what about your life if I cherished sin in my heart she would not have listened and fourthly, our prayers need to be in the name of Jesus. truly, truly, I say to you, says Jesus, John 16:23, "Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He will give it to you." Non-Christians can't really pray unless God is working to bring them to Jesus. It's not true to say to everybody they can pray, because God won't hear them. They have to come through Jesus. We never ask for anything on our own authority. We ask on the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ who is at the Father's right hand and intercedes for us. So, taking all these things into account then, the invitation then nonetheless encourages us to keep asking in prayer. I don't believe that the Bible says unless you are sure of these things, you cannot ask. I believe the Bible does encourage us to ask even when we're unsure, but he wants us to be more sure. And to recognize that maybe we've got wrong motives, maybe we've got passions that are misplaced and so on, but we still keep asking. But we may get the answer no, and we need to recognize that. But keep asking, keep coming to God, keep praying, keep exercising faith. Recognize that the way you see things is not the same as how God sees things. So you need to come to him in prayer with, a certain, with the right level of humility. Asking God to enable him to search your heart. And to reveal what your real passions are. Because they may be idolatrous. To be honest about the sins that you love and repent of them. To make sure that your requests are in and through Jesus Christ and for his glory. So... Why did Jesus overturn tables? Why did he curse the fig tree on the uh, fig tree by the road? Because he saw the symptoms of a loss of heart for God's glory amongst his people, and that manifested itself in a loss of prayer and a loss of desire to approach God to plead with Him, according to the promises that He has given. What about you this morning? Do you have a lack of desire for prayer? Are you giving up on the promises of God? Are you giving yourself to other earthly things, therefore? Because always something comes in and fills the void. Are you giving yourself to your own earthly desires, or will your life and this church be a place of prayer? Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this marvelous word and. Uh, Uh, The way in which Jesus shows us what the real heart of things is. Oh, we pray, Father, that you would grant us that we may turn to you afresh. That we would be stimulated to pray and not simply take for granted. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.